Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Howdy, everybody. CJ here, and welcome to Dangerous History Podcast episode, I believe, 230. And I'm calling this one Florida Man on Florida. So I'm sure many of you have already listened to my recent appearance on the Tom Wood Show to talk about Florida and the pros and cons of it as a place to potentially relocate to, as many people are looking to move from various places to freer places these days. And Florida is very often on people's short list of potential places to relocate to in search of greater personal freedom, along with a few other places like commonly Texas, Tennessee, New Hampshire, a few other places. So, on that episode with Tom, we talked about some of the pros and cons of Florida as a place to live, some of the pros and cons of the different regions of Florida, uh, and I managed to dump in some Florida history and that sort of stuff as well. So I'm sure many of you have already heard that episode. Maybe you're new listeners to this podcast because you heard me on Tom's show. And I've been on Tom's show a few times in the past, but it's been a few years since the last time I was on Tom's show. And I know his show has grown significantly since the last time I appeared on his show. So anyway, if you're a new listener to the Dangerous History Podcast, welcome aboard. This is kind of an unusual episode. It's certainly not, you know, one of my long historical narrative type episodes. This one's a little bit more off the cuff. And I'm going to throw in some history, but it's really just an elaboration, really, on Florida as a place. And some of the things to to think about and consider if you're a recent transplant to Florida or if you're considering moving to Florida from somewhere else, whatever like that. 
So I wanted to elaborate a bit more on, you know, things that didn't come up in my conversation with Tom or things that maybe did come up that we touched on briefly that I would like to throw a little bit more elaboration onto. And just a little bit before I kind of delve into that about what's going on with me and the podcast. So about three years ago, my wife and I sold the home that we had been living in for almost a decade in St. Augustine, and we relocated one county south into Flagler County, as I mentioned on my appearance on Tom Woods. And so for three years, we've been down here in Flagler County, and we've been renting since then. But just about a week ago, we closed on a new house that's just a few miles away from where we've been renting. And because of the closeness of where we have been living to where we're moving to, we've been able to do a lot of our moving in small batches, you know, just using cars and trucks and things and bringing as much of the small to medium stuff as we can, you know, kind of shuttling back and forth. And then uh, in a few days from when I'm recording this now, we're going to have professional movers just to come and take care of the really big items, you know, the washer, the dryer, the bigger pieces of furniture, that kind of stuff. But we won't have to pay them as much because we won't need them for as many hours because we've moved so much of our stuff already into the new home. So as a result, I've been unable to do any recording in my home studio. And it'll be a little bit before I get the new home studio, which I'm very excited about. The, the new home office slash studio in the new house that we're buying. It'll be a little while before I have that set up to where I can do some good recording there. So between that and the time crunch with everything else going on, because we're moving as the new semester is starting up for me and I'm going back to work. So in case you can't tell from the sound or if you didn't already glance at the show notes, this is what I call a silver bullet episode. And what I mean by that is it is an episode being recorded as I'm driving to work. And I drive a silver Hyundai Accent hatchback currently, so whenever I do this and record while I'm driving, I refer to it as a silver bullet episode. So understand I'm driving as I'm doing this. I do this occasionally if I've got a situation where I'm kind of crunched for time, having a hard time, or in this case because of moving, having a hard time recording, you know, in the home studio environment. And if there's a topic I can talk about with little or no notes, usually what I do when I record in my car is I've just got a few kind of bullet points to keep me on track of what I want to talk about, but that's it. Because obviously you don't want to be reading, uh, looking at detailed notes or anything like that while you're driving. So, you know, just a few bullet points to occasionally take a glance at to keep yourself on track and make sure you don't forget to say anything important that you wanted to say about the topic. So... As I'm driving to work this morning, it is the first day of actual classes of the spring 2022 semester. So yesterday I had my first work day back after Christmas break, but it was just an office, you know, prep day. I was super busy. I had so much to do. They only gave us one work day to set up for the new semester before the classes start, which is kind of annoying. So anyway, I am recording in my car. If the audio quality doesn't seem quite as good as my normal standards or whatever, that's why, just a disclaimer. So anyway, it is a very, very 
stressful time for me right now because I'm moving as the new semester is starting and moving is always a pain, especially, you know, I've got a wife and two kids, so family of four. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's quite a piece of work, even if you're only moving a few miles away from where you were living previously. So anyway, I just wanted to share some additional thoughts and information for anybody who is maybe a recent transplant to Florida, or maybe has been living in Florida for a while but hasn't really explored the the state and its history and its culture and all that very much, and um, also for anyone who's considering possibly relocating to Florida, and just in general, anyone who's considering relocating anywhere new, whether it's Florida or not, and even anyone who's maybe going to be visiting Florida in the future, if you want to know a little bit more about it or you know, some more resources you can consult, because I find that it makes visiting a place, at least for me, and part of it's my personality, I'm very high on curiosity and openness, and I always want to learn new things about something. I find that when I visit a place, I really appreciate the vacation a lot more if I actually learn a little bit about the place and its history and its culture and really try and experience What's unique and different about it when I go? So anyway, I hope you'll find what I have to say interesting and thought-provoking, and especially if you're someone considering maybe moving to Florida or if you're a recent transplant and you're someone who, you know, shares my tendency to be very curious about things and always looking to deepen my understanding about things. So this is going to be a little bit kind of jumping around. It's not super well organized. I just sort of have my bullet points. But the first thing I wanted to mention to keep in mind about Florida that I don't think I really hit on explicitly in my conversation with Tom Woods, I mentioned that Florida is hot, flat, and crowded. And that's absolutely true. But there's one more thing to throw in there, which is it's not just that it's hot, for, you know, two-thirds or more of the year, depending on where you live and what's going on that year as far as the weather. It's also really humid. It's one of the most humid, if not the most humid, states in the U.S. Ironically, given the fact that it's known as the Sunshine State, and yes, we do get a lot of sunshine and a lot of skin cancer too, for that matter. Ironically, though, we also get tons of rain and storms. So keep that in mind. This is not Southern California, where it's clear and sunny most of the time and rarely rains. No, Florida gets a ton of storms, and not just the hurricanes and tropical storms, but just like big, regular thunderstorms happen. Um, the rainy season is basically the summer, which keep in mind the summer here is like, you know, six to eight months minimum. And it still rains a fair amount in the winter, just less by comparison. But believe it or not, for a place known as the Sunshine State, Florida actually gets more total inches of rain per year on average than any other state in America. So, yeah, calling it the Sunshine State, in a way, is sort of like calling the humongous guy tiny, or calling the super klutzy guy slick. Now, one of the natural consequences of all that rain, in a place that's pretty hot most of the time, and the fact that Florida has a ton of lakes and rivers and is a peninsula surrounded by ocean on all but one side is very high humidity. 
And if you've never experienced humid heat, it's different. It really is. When people say, oh, yeah, it's hot in Arizona, but it's a dry heat or something like that. It's like there's something to that. I've been to places that are hot but very dry, and it is night and day compared to how things feel in Florida where it's hot and very humid. So keep that in mind. You're going to feel hotter and stickier, and you're going to sweat more in a place that even is slightly hotter, but has way less humidity, like, you know, parts of the Southwest. By the way, just as a side note, I would highly recommend, particularly in the summer months in Florida, that you try as much as possible to avoid 100% cotton clothing. It's not your friend when it's really hot and humid. You want fabrics as much as possible that will breathe and that will wick moisture. So polyester, or at the very least, polyester cotton blend. I long ago gave up on wearing 100% cotton stuff outside, if I can help it, when it's hot and humid. Now, I mentioned briefly in my conversation with Tom, I think that Florida has a very good state park system. And if you're somebody like me who likes, you know, canoeing and kayaking and fishing and hiking and camping and all that sort of stuff... This is great because there's lots of state parks in Florida and most of them are very good and some of them are just excellent. But I wanted to mention in particular one thing that Florida has a lot of that as far as I know, no other American state comes close in this regard is natural springs and, you know, spring fed rivers and all that. And many of the best springs in the state have over the years been turned into state parks. So one thing that's very cool to do, haha, literally a pun, on a hot day is go swim in a spring-fed river or something like that because the water is cold year-round, no matter what's going on with the weather. And not only is spring-fed water pretty cold all the time, it is usually crystal clear, like gin clear. And so it's beautiful. And, you know, to to snorkel in with a mask and snorkel or whatever like that, it's just incredible. Also, by the way, in most parts of Florida, if there's a body of fresh water bigger than like a puddle, there's probably alligators in it. But the cool part about the spring-fed bodies of water is that during the warmer months, when you would actually want to swim in these things... Gators don't go in there because it's too cold for them. Now, gators will sometimes go into spring-fed bodies of water during the winter, particularly if it gets pretty cold, which it does, you know, occasionally for brief periods of time, especially in North Florida. Because I, I forget what the, the spring-fed river temperatures are. I want to say it's like low 70s or whatever, which feels freezing on a hot day, honestly. But if the air temperature is 40 and the river is still, you know, 72 degrees or whatever it is, then under those circumstances to a cold-blooded reptile like an alligator, the river is actually going to be, you know, a little bit warm. So you will sometimes see alligators in spring-fed bodies of water during the winter, but it's extremely rare to see them in there during the summer. And so, you know, if you want to go swimming in fresh water, but you don't want to, you know, have the likelihood of, of gators being around you or whatever, go swim in the spring in the spring-fed uh, bodies of water. And by the way, any rivers and lakes in Florida that are not spring-fed, 
the water is usually naturally very, very murky, stained with tannins, the, the chemicals in, you know, certain types of foliage and whatever. And so most of the lakes and rivers in Florida, the water is like a dark brown or whatever, and you can't really see. And so if you're in one of those swimming around and there's also gators swimming all around you, that can be a little bit disconcerting. Ask me how I know that. Whereas, again, in the, crisp, in the crystal clear waters of the spring-fed uh, rivers and things, it's just super clear all the time. So anyway, just a few that I've personally been to uh, that I can recommend would include Rainbow River and Blue Springs and Silver Springs, DeLeon Springs. And not all these places have swimming, although many of them do. And they also will often have things like canoe rentals, glass-bottom boat rides, all kinds of cool stuff. Also, there is a river in kind of north-central Florida that I like to visit in the summer that's called the Itchituckney River. And I believe that's spelled I-C-H-E-T-U-C-K-N-E-E. It's obviously a Native American name. And the big thing on the Itchituckney River is tubing. You go there and you rent inner tubes, and then you tube down this extremely scenic, picturesque, spring-fed river. And it's a lot of fun. So I wanted to make sure to mention that, that that's one of the neat things. And by the way, when tourism first started to be a thing in kind of late 19th, early 20th century Florida... Most of the tourism at that time had to do with nature in one way or another. It was people coming for hunting or fishing or just, you know, wildlife viewing and that sort of stuff. And a lot of it centered on the spring-fed rivers. So I wanted to mention that. Um, if you're interested in learning more about Florida history, a great overview is a book simply titled History of Florida, and it's edited by... I think he's at the University of Florida, if I remember correctly, a top Florida history professor named Michael Gannon. And the book has chapters written by various experts in specific aspects of Florida history. So, you know, there'll be like a, a chapter on Florida and the Civil War that's written by someone who's a specialist in that and, and so forth. Now, it varies widely um, from one chapter to the next. Some of these people are much better and easier, uh, better writers and easier reads than others, whereas some of them are more dry. So it varies, but that gives you a great overview of Florida history from literally prehistoric times until, you know, close to the present day. And you can also, because each chapter is sort of like a little self-contained article, it's a good one to be able to just sort of look up a topic that you're interested in. Uh, that you want to know more about. So that's actually one of the textbooks that I use when I teach Florida history. If you want to know more about the Seminole Indians and the Seminole Wars, which to me are some of the most interesting parts of Florida history, and in many ways uh, simultaneously inspiring and tragic, there's a fair number of good books on this. The two authors, they're a husband and wife team that generally write together uh, that are the top-notch experts on all things Seminole and Seminole Wars are John and Mary Lou Missal, and their last name is spelled M-I-S-S-A-L. And so they've got a lot of the definitive books about the, the history of the Seminole Indians in the 19th century and the wars 
and all that kind of stuff. To really dig deep into the recent history of Florida, I would recommend a book called Land of Sunshine, State of Dreams. This is the second textbook that I use in Florida history, other than History of Florida, edited by Gannon. Land of Sunshine, State of Dreams is by a Florida historian named Gary Mormino, and his last name is spelled M-O-R-M-I-N-O. And this is a social history of Florida, so it's mostly looking at kind of the way regular people live and, and culture and that kind of stuff. And it's very good social history. I'm often not a fan of social history, but this, to me, this book is social history done very well. And Gary Mormino is a very good writer. He's very readable. So I would highly recommend Land of Sunshine, State of Dreams. This primarily focuses on the social history of Florida since World War II, because it's in the aftermath of World War II that Florida really starts to take off in population and goes from being one of the most lightly populated states in the eastern U.S. to eventually being one of the most populated states in the entire country. And setting aside history specifically... And just talking about Florida in general, I would urge you to look into a lot of the literary lights of Florida literature, either people who who live in Florida who write about it, or even people who don't live in Florida, but who have written about it. There's a lot of great Florida literature out there. And so I'm just going to mention a grab bag of very diverse Florida works of literature, and I'm sure there's many more I could think of if I wasn't driving and, you know, all that, but these are just some of my personal favorites. First, I'll mention Carl Hyacin, and I believe his last name is spelled H-I-A, maybe two A's, S-E-N, something like that. And Carl Hyacin, longtime writer, I believe, for the Miami Herald, but also a novelist, and A lot of his novels, as far as I know, and I've only read a few of them, honestly, but a lot of his novels, if not all of his novels, are kind of a mixture of crime and humor, and usually set in Florida, especially South Florida. And I think a couple of his novels have been made into movies over the years. He actually wrote Striptease, that Demi Moore movie from the 90s that was originally a Carl Hyacin novel, if you're familiar with that. Um, I think one or two other things he wrote were turned into movies over the years. My personal favorite novel of his is a novel called Tourist Season, which is an interesting, somewhat humorous take on the idea of environmentalist terrorism, basically. And Hyacin, he's a, he's a left-winger, he's, he's kind of a progressive, and he's very much an environmentalist, and so, you know, I have mixed feelings about his, his sort of ideology and his take. I do have a lot of sympathy with his take as far as feeling protective of Florida's natural environment and natural beauty, and not being a fan of what excessive development and, you know, big sugar and things like that have done to the Florida environment. And he's a very good writer. And tourist season in particular, I I have some sympathy for. And it's a fun read. Another guy who also writes, even more so than Hyacin, usually with a lot of humor, is Dave Barry, who's also a Miami guy. And I think also 
wrote and I think still writes for the Miami Herald. I could be wrong about that, obviously. Like most people under the age of 70, I don't read actual newspapers anymore. But Dave Barry has also written a number of humorous novels, and like Hyacinth, he often kind of blends crime with humor. Trying to think, I've, I've read a few different books by him over the years. There was one that he wrote, I think it was called Big Trouble in Miami, as a novel that then later got turned into a movie just called Big Trouble back in the 90s. But he's usually very funny. He's, I believe, some sort of a libertarian, you know, maybe not like a really radical one, but kind of a mild libertarian, as far as I know. But usually very funny. Another Florida writer worth checking out who writes, I think, exclusively nonfiction, but really about Florida, where he, he really likes to travel to different parts of Florida and tell you interesting stories about eccentric people and interesting places is an author named Jeff Klinkenberg, and his last name, I believe, is spelled K-L-I-N-K-E-N-B-E-R-G, Jeff Klinkenberg. And he's from somewhere over the, on the Gulf Coast, I think Tampa or something like that, writes for a newspaper over there, but has also published a number of nonfiction books basically about Florida and you know different aspects of its culture and the eccentric people that live in different parts of Florida. And he's a very good, very entertaining writer, an excellent nonfiction writer, and um, probably his best-known book is called Seasons of Real Florida, and he's written a few others as well that off the top of my head I can't remember the titles, but he's very much worth reading, and I actually got to meet him. He spoke at my college a while back, I want to say at least 10 years ago. He came and gave a little presentation that I attended and all that, so... Cool guy, nice guy, and very, very interesting to read. Another Florida author that I'm a big fan of is Randy Wayne White. And he's down in southwest Florida, kind of near Sanibel or on Sanibel, I forget which. And he's an interesting guy. He actually used to be a fishing guide before he started writing. And he's written nonfiction stuff, a lot of it having to do with fishing and, you know, being out on the water, that sort of stuff. But he's also written a ton of novels, and he writes really good, kind of like fast-paced crime thriller-type novels with some humor, but he's less of a humorist than Dave Barry or Carl Hyacin, though he does definitely have a lot of humor laced into his stories. And in particular, his series of novels revolving around a character named Doc Ford who is a really interesting character. He is a marine biologist slash secret agent who gets into all kinds of interesting situations and whatever. And I really, really like Randy Wayne White's writing style. And I also got to meet him. He gave a talk at Flagler College, my alma mater, again, probably 10, 10 years ago, if not a little bit more, and um, I attended his presentation. He was the keynote speaker at kind of a literary thing going on there. Um, and I got to chat with him briefly for just a couple minutes and got him to sign my copy of his first Doc Ford novel. And anyway, Randy Wayne White is just, to me, a blast to read. And he's got a great cast of characters in his novels. They're set in an interesting little marina in southwest Florida. And you've got Doc Ford, this kind of nerdy yet kind of like big and strong and tough guy who, again, is a marine biologist slash secret agent. 
and he's got a sidekick named Tomlinson, who's this hippie guy who's way out there. And whenever I read those novels, I always picture Tomlinson as being Tommy Chong. That's how in my head he looks and sounds. And Doc Ford and Tomlinson have a great odd couple buddy cop kind of dynamic because Doc Ford is very rational and linear and scientific and Tomlinson is very intuitive and unconventional and eccentric. And so they, they just have a great dynamic in all those novels. So I would highly recommend some of my favorite Florida fiction, honestly, are Randy Wayne White's Doc Ford novels. In addition to that, I would recommend, if you want some good historical fiction, check out the novels by a guy named Peter Matheson. And his main one that I've read is called Killing Mr. Watson. And it's about, I can't remember if it was late 19th, early 20th century, but down in South Florida when it was very still, very much still a frontier down in South Florida. And it's an historical novel kind of based on some true stuff with some literary license and all that. And that's very interesting. And he wrote a whole series of novels of which Killing Mr. Watson was the first, and I don't remember the names of the others off the top of my head. However, he eventually took all of them in the series and put them together into one giant book, and I believe either rewrote or or added to it or something like that, and that is called Shadow Country. And I have a copy of Shadow Country, but I have not read it yet. So it'll be interesting to see. I read Killing Mr. Watson a while ago, so I don't even know if I'll remember you know, how much, when I read Shadow Country, how much the first part of Shadow Country, which is Killing Mr. Watson, uh, has been modified. But anyway, that's good historical fiction. Um, in addition to that, a little bit more of a blast from the past, there's, of course, Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings, who wrote the novel The Yearling, which is pretty well known. And she also wrote the nonfiction book Cross Creek, about her time living in a tiny little frontier Florida town called Cross Creek in central Florida. And then just in terms of other types of sort of art and culture, I'm a big fan of the documentaries directed by Billy Corbin, who's probably most well-known for the Cocaine Cowboys stuff, which is great and a lot of fun, even though some of it gets pretty dark when they're talking about murdering people and whatever. But he's done a whole bunch of other documentaries of various types about the craziness of Florida, especially South Florida. He's a Miami guy. And so he did one called Square Grouper that was about marijuana smuggling into Florida, kind of in the 70s, I think, primarily, which is super interesting and has all kinds of crazy people in it. Uh, he did one about just how crazy the University of Miami football team was in uh, the 80s. It was one of the 30 for 30 HBO documentaries. I forget what, I think it was just called The U. And so that was interesting because I was a little kid when all that stuff was going on, when UM was like, you know, dominating college football, but also all kinds of crazy scandals and things going on uh, around the team. So Billy Corbin documentaries are a lot of fun and they, they give you an insight into the craziness, the good, the bad, and the ugly, uh, especially of South Florida. On a totally different note, I would recommend, if you're someone who appreciates the visual arts, check out the photography of a guy named Clyde Butcher. Clyde Butcher. Clyde Butcher is a landscape photographer uh, 
who many years ago, I believe the story is that it was in response to his son died relatively young, and it, as you might expect, put him into a terrible funk and depression. And so he already was a photographer of some type, I believe, but he really, in his depression, he really started just spending lots of time out alone in nature in Florida. And what he started to do was to do Florida landscape photos in black and white, which is not what you think of when you think of Florida landscape, right? But if you just look up this guy's work, and he's done other places too. He's gone to like national parks and famous landmarks in other parts of the country. He, um, I believe, has done photography in Cuba as well. And it's, you know, natural landscapes done in black and white, but it's just, you have to see it to understand, you know, when you hear landscape photograph in black and white, that might sound like, how could that be interesting at all? But I'm telling you, just Google Clyde Butcher photographs and you'll be stunned at what this guy is able to do, taking black and white photos out in the Everglades or along the Florida coast and whatever like that. It's just stunning. Also, visual arts, the opposite as far as color goes, but still landscape, is a group of 20th century painters in Florida who got known as the Highwaymen. Now, these were African-American landscape painters who were self-taught and who painted Florida landscapes very quickly, like they would, they would knock out a painting really fast, you know, like Bob Ross speed. And what's interesting is these guys started doing it just to make money without having to work. Because, you know, in the early to mid 20th century in Florida, if you were a black person and you weren't one of the few who were able to, you know, get a good education or whatever like that, which, you know, at the time, obviously, there was a huge amount of hurdles if you were born, especially a poor black person in the South, you know, a lot of opportunities and careers and educational pathways were just simply not open to you at the time, no matter how much you might have been willing to, to work hard. So as a result, you know, the majority of black people in Florida in the early to mid 20th century were working hard physical labor jobs in agriculture and things like that and not making much money and, you know, working their ass off in the horrible heat and humidity. And uh, this group of artists, these, this group of guys, they, they realized that they could make as much or more money with a lot less work and certainly a lot less discomfort by doing paintings and selling them to tourists and also selling them to, you know, random places to put up as decoration, like doctor's offices and restaurants and stores and things. And so they would do these paintings and like crank them out really fast, but they were always beautiful landscapes with very bright, vivid colors. So as far as the color palette, it's the opposite of Clyde Butcher with his black and white. And so they sold these things and at the time, you know, no one really thought much of them. They they were considered like a, you know, kind of cheap decoration you could throw up in the waiting room of your dentist office or, you know, you would buy if you were a tourist to Florida to bring home and put up on your living room wall. But then over time, people started to realize, like, oh, no, this is legit art. Like, this is some serious what's known as folk art, right? And so now, original highwayman paintings, especially because a lot of them eventually got thrown out and things like that, original highwayman paintings actually can be worth a tremendous amount of money. And my college actually had an exhibit of highwayman paintings a few years ago that, of course, I was sure to attend. And if you just 
you know, Google image search or whatever, high women paintings, Florida, something like that, you'll get a sense of what these guys did. And it's just incredible and just, you know, gorgeous, vivid, brightly colored Florida landscapes. Oh, another book worth mentioning. I, I did mention on Tom's show briefly the so-called Cracker Cowboys. Now, you have to understand, when you hear Cracker Cowboy or Florida Cracker or things like that, it's not the same thing that people might mean when they say the word cracker in other parts of the American South. It particularly refers to these Florida Cowboys in the late 19th, early 20th century who specialized in rounding up feral cattle that were running wild around the Florida countryside at the time that were the descendants of cattle that had escaped from the early Spanish settlers. And enterprising men would go out there and they would use, you know, they'd be on horseback and they would use whips and dogs to round up and herd these wild cattle and then would drive them typically to ports in southern Florida where um, for a long time you could make good money by sending rounding up cattle in Florida and then getting them onto ships to be sent down to Cuba. And so some of these Cracker Cowboys ended up doing very well for themselves. And there's a great historical novel called A Land Remembered by a guy named Patrick Smith that is the story of one particular fictional, but based on some real people, fictional Florida Cracker Cowboy family. And it starts either during or just before the Civil War and goes all the way a bit into the 20th century, and, and through a few generations. It's a very interesting read, and um, this family that's the, the focus of the book, they eventually do very well for themselves. But it gives you a sense of just you know how these people were, and how much of a rugged frontier Florida really was into the 20th century. So that's a cool one. Another thing worth looking up, and this is something that I'm going to make the um, image for this episode of the Dangerous History Podcast is something called the Conch Republic. Conch as in the shell. And I've never heard anyone in Florida call it a conch. I don't know who the hell does that, but nobody in Florida that I've ever heard who's not a recent you know, Yankee transplant or whatever calls it a conch. It's a conch. Now, for a long time... The word conch has been a nickname for people who live in Key West, and sometimes it's applied to residents of the other Keys as well. And in the early 80s, I want to say it was 1982, there was a situation where, I forget honestly the the exact details of how it started, but Key West got into some kind of a dispute with the federal government of the United States, and they kind of fake seceded. You know, they kind of had fun pretending to secede. And they called themselves the Conch Republic. And they created this flag with a conch shell in the middle of it, and it says, we seceded where others failed. And I just love, I love the humor and whimsy. In in some ways, that's kind of like Florida at its best, you know, when it's like this kind of goofy eccentricity with a good sense of humor. And so anyway, there was a brief window of time where uh, Key West was re- resisting the federal government about something. I don't even remember what it was. And they started flying the Conquer Republic flag. And eventually this became kind of like a little local symbol and, um, you know, also something to kind of, you know, be cool for the tourists and whatever. But I just always loved the spirit of the Conquer Republic and that sense of humor. 
And on Tom's show, I had mentioned Florida cuisine a little bit. Primarily, I mentioned Cuban food, which, again, if you've never had Cuban food, if you can find a good uh, Cuban restaurant, go check it out. It's good stuff. But also, there's a lot of just kind of like Florida cracker and conch cuisine. So, you know, in many parts of coastal Florida, the humble fish sandwich has been elevated into a work of art. And by the way, if you're going to eat fish in Florida, don't don't get tilapia. That's grown in a farm in like South America or China. And farm-grown tilapia, by the way, is fish that lives primarily by eating the shit of other fish. So, you know, don't don't order tilapia and don't order salmon if you're in Florida. For God's sake, that came from either a farm a fish farm, or from, you know, thousands of miles away. If you're in Florida and you're getting fish, you get something like snapper, or you get grouper, or if you want to be fancy, you get pompado, or you get what we in Florida call dolphin, and what transplants call mahi-mahi. But to me, the most iconic fish sandwich in Florida history is one that's called the Harvey Special, that originated at a restaurant in the Keys, if I remember right, it's on Key Largo, I think a restaurant called the Pilot House. And the Harvey Special is a hunk of fish, I think it's typically snapper or grouper, fried on like a Kaiser bun with American cheese and caramelized onions and a slice of tomato and tartar sauce. And it's one of those things that's so simple, but when it's done right, it is absolute perfection. And lots of different restaurants have, whether they realize it or not, a version of that. Uh, in addition, if you go to any of the Isla Mirada Fish Company restaurants throughout Florida, they'll have a sandwich like that, but they'll also have a grouper Reuben, which is exactly what it sounds like, and it is good. Um, and there's other, you know, local variations of the humble fish sandwich, sometimes grilled, sometimes fried, sometimes blackened, whatever. But a good fish sandwich from a good Florida restaurant that knows what it's doing is a work of art. In addition to that, I would recommend trying alligator. It's very good if you go to a place that does it well. And there's a lot of different ways it can be cooked. Also, I would recommend conch itself. Yes, the humble sea snail with that pretty shell. And there's a lot of different ways you can get this. Conch chowder can be very good. Conch fritters can be very good. My personal favorite is what's called cracked conch, which is just conch meat that's been breaded and fried. And just in general, I would say whether you're moving to or considering moving to Florida or to Texas or to Tennessee or wherever, I would strongly urge you to really try to understand and appreciate the history of wherever it is you're moving to. Please don't be like most people who move to a new place. Most people who move to a new place, whether it's within, you know, a big country like the U.S. or if they move to a new country entirely, they tend to cling to the ways of the place they're leaving much more than they try to explore and understand and embrace the ways and the culture of the place they're moving to. Now, I'm not saying that you ought to give up entirely on the culture and things of the place you're moving from and you should never have the food from the place you're leaving or never, you know, read literature or look at art from the place you're leaving, but I'm saying also let in the new place too and really try and understand it and dig deep 
And as I was trying to get at on Tom's show, you know, if you're somebody who's interested in ideas like decentralization, nullification, or even secession, local autonomy, local identity, you're going to stand on stronger ground if you're deeply rooted. And even if you're a relatively new arrival to the place you're in, if you really take the time to try to learn about and appreciate its history, its cultures, its uniqueness, even its art, its literature, its cuisine, you're going to have a stronger appreciation for the place. And you're going to be more firm if and when you have to take a stand in defense of your local autonomy. And this really started to strike me many years ago when I was studying Irish history, and then it got even more you know, reinforced when I visited Ireland a bunch of times, that Irish people very often have like a deep understanding of their little island's history and culture and music and art and all these things, and that this is what gave them the, the sustenance to stand against the British Empire at a time when that was the world's greatest superpower. Now, if you go back and look at the types of guys, for example, who led the Easter Rising and then the Anglo-Irish War of Independence, typically they deeply knew their country's history, culture, literature. They appreciated its language. They appreciated the land itself and its beauty and its landmarks. And this is the type of thing that really gives you the emotional backbone to take a stand if you have to against distant, overwhelming authority trying to force its ways upon you against your will. So, you know, whether you're moving to Texas, Florida, Tennessee, or someplace else, I really urge you to try to deeply understand and appreciate what's unique about the place you're moving to. Everything from food to landscape to culture to history. And then the last thing I'll mention before I wrap it up is if you're interested in more Florida history, aside from the books I've mentioned here, I've done a number of episodes on Florida history in various ways over the years on this podcast. So all the way back, episodes 23 and 24, which are now behind my paywall as vintage DHP episodes, I did two episodes on the Seminole Wars. And this is a topic, by the way, I'm planning on revisiting in the hopefully relatively near future with my now improved production standards and, you know, with more depth and length to my coverage of these topics. Because I think they're really interesting, and especially to anyone who's sort of like a libertarian or anything like that, there's a lot to appreciate about the Seminole. Moving to episodes that are not currently behind my paywall, I did an episode Years ago, episode 71 on the Calusa Indians, who were one of the original native tribes of Florida at the time the Spanish showed up, and who were very interesting in a variety of ways, very different from most Native American tribes at the time. I did episode 141, which I called Draining the Swamp, which was about how the U.S. government and the Florida state government waged war to try to drain the Everglades and all the horrific consequences that caused. I then did a two-part series a little bit later, episodes 143 and 144, that I called Rise of the Cane Kingdom, which was all about how Big Sugar came to be a thing in South Florida and how much that was essentially an agriculture industry built on government welfare, welfare for millionaires. And then I also did an episode, it was episode 181, called Place of the Slaughter, which is about 
in a way, the founding massacre of Spanish Florida. And it actually was not a massacre against the natives, if that's what you might think. It was actually a massacre against French colonists who, briefly, there was a French colony in Florida until the Spanish wiped it out. And it's a very interesting story that even if you're not particularly interested in Florida history, it's still a fascinating action-packed story. So anyway, check those out if you're interested in learning more about Florida history and things like that. And thank you for listening. I hope I've given you some stuff to think about, maybe some stuff to look up and look into, maybe some stuff to read, some stuff to taste, some stuff to look at and appreciate as far as art goes.